the right view which we have been discussing has, as you know, now turned into the um, depend origination, the chain of cause and effect. And the last one that we talked about was feeling, which is the one where we could make a stop to our reactions. If we could see feeling as just feeling, if we didn't think we owned it, if we didn't think that we only wanted the pleasant and not the unpleasant. Now the cause for which feeling is the result are our sense contacts, all six of them. And while we have them and can't really live without them, we have to become aware of them. If we become aware of them, we will see that they are promising us something which they can't fulfill. They are promising and satisfaction or a, an inner joy which is not within the power of the sense contact to actually originate. So we need to watch our sense contacts, not necessarily to start right out with guarding them, but just to be aware that we're having them and to see what we want to get out of them, whether we really are expecting something. And if we are expecting something, we can be quite sure that we're going to be disappointed. Expectations and disappointments always go together. If we were just to watch them objectively, we wouldn't expect anything. We just have them. There's no reason why we shouldn't have them. We've got the senses, which is the reason for having them. They're called, in the Buddhist terminology, the sixfold sense space. Well, they're six senses, and which always includes the thinking as a sense. And because we have those senses, obviously we have sense contact. But our lack of mindfulness our lack of attention, our half-sleep in which we walk around and sit around and do everything prevents us from recognizing what our senses are actually doing and what we are expecting from them and how we are constantly trying to use them. What we get through them is comparative to, or comparable, to fool's gold. It glitters, but it has no value. It's a glittering gold-like 
mineral in the stone which an inexperienced gold panner takes the th- uh, as gold takes to the assayer's office and finds out they're worthless. They're just stone. And this is actually what our sense contacts are. The Buddha compared them also to empty villages, ghost towns, we should say. He uses the uh, simile of a traveler who is traveling without any provisions and he sees a village in the distance and thinks, oh, how lucky I am. Now I'll get to that place and I'll be able to obtain food and drink. And then he gets there and he finds it's a ghost town. There's nobody there. And so he keeps on walking to find food and drink and again he comes to a village and again there's nobody there. This is what the Buddha compared to our sense contacts. We expect to get something, but when we actually get it, it's nothing because it comes and it goes. And if we don't notice it ever, we'll never get out of this chain of events which is not only cause and effect but it is a chain binding us to this dreamlike existence which is repeated over and over again because we expect something which is not possible to have fulfilled and because we don't recognize it we will continue the expectation and not only that but there's another factor involved here which is also an important one to recognize and we will touch upon it again later it's this wanting something I want to get it I want to get my joy and happiness out of Eye, ear, taste, touch, smell, or thought contact. Where else can I get it from? That's all I've got. It isn't all we've got. But until we become aware of the fact in meditation that we've got far more than that, until that time we will believe that's all we've got. If we don't see it, don't hear it, don't taste it, don't touch it, don't smell it, at least we're going to have to think it. What else is there? Well, there's plenty else, but it has to be experienced through first the meditative absorptions and then through the giving up of the wanting. So here we have not only this preconditioned reaction all the time, the expectation for something we can't get, but what we also have is the wanting. And all that is is dukkha. I want it. So it's got to be Dukkha. It can't be anything else. Now, this is all very interesting, all very well, but if we don't notice it ourselves, it's useless. So try and find out what you do with your senses. Any one of the six or all of them, it doesn't matter. We do the same thing with all of them. 
If you notice it through seeing or through thinking, it makes no difference. It's all one and the same. When you notice that there's a wanting, you will, if you watch out, become aware of the fact that the wanting itself, the wanting something, is already unpleasant. It has anxiety in it. It has unrest, restlessness in it. It has a craving in it, which means I haven't got what I really want. I want something else. So I'm not satisfied. So there's dissatisfaction. From the word go, it's full of dukkha. Now again, that doesn't mean we don't look, we don't hear, we don't taste, we don't touch, we don't smell. It doesn't mean any of that. It just means that we don't expect our happiness out of that. We just do it. And we recognize the fact that there is something else which brings happiness. And it's not the wanting. It's got to be the letting go. Now this is a very significant understanding which is very important on this pathway of insight. Because insight, to most people, doesn't just happen. That's a pious hope, but it isn't reality. One's got to direct oneself towards insight. We can sit here forever and never get insight if we don't direct our mind towards it. So one of the ways of finding this insight, this particular one, that the sense contacts are all connected to dukkha because there's wanting in it and that this wanting is bound up with disappointment because the senses cannot fulfill our expectations is to actually become aware of it oneself. Walk around and say, okay, I want to become aware of my seeing contacts. What am I doing with it? Now, the first instance, it may, may not even work. Well, try it again. Find out how it, how it works and what the mind does with it. Does it see things as permanent? Does it see them as solid? Does it see them as having a reality in joyfulness or happiness because we see them does the mind see like that and then no longer the eye seeing it and then what what the mind do then want to hear something and see it again as solid and as permanent and as having great joy in it and then that's finished and then the next thing and the next thing try it out you don't have to do it that way just find out what the senses with which we are constantly occupied, actually doing. It's very interesting. Nothing could be more interesting than finding out the truth about oneself. We're always quite interested in other people, all the funny things they're doing. Well, let's find out all the funny things we're doing, and then we know what everybody else is doing. It's all one and the same. Now, obviously, our sense contacts are due to the fact that we have the six-fold sense base. We've got them, and therefore it's happening. And we can be grateful that we have them, because life would be much more difficult, far more than it is already, 
if we didn't have them, if something was wrong with them, if we were either blind or deaf or couldn't think properly or whether we couldn't smell anything, people do have that affliction also, things would be much more difficult. There's also the possibility of having no touch sensation. Some illnesses produce that. For instance, leprosy produces no touch sensation. So all of these things are quite important to have, but how do we deal with them? Now, our six-fold sense base is, of course, due to and the result of having name and form, which means mind and body. In Pali, the mind is called often not only chitta, but also nama, which means the name and sometimes translated as name, but that is not exactly right. It means mind and form, of course, being the body. When we see the, um, the picture of depend origination, which is um, quite often rather colorful and interesting, mind and body are depicted as a rowing boat in which there is a prone passenger on its back, or his back or her back. Now, this passenger is the body, and the one who rows the boat is the mind. So we've got two there, mind and body, interconnected, interdependent, but two. Now, that happens to be the very first step into insight, to recognize the fact that there isn't just one lump sitting here. This one lump that's sitting here, and which is called me, needs to be broken up into its separate parts in order to get a more realistic view of me. The unrealistic view that we have of me is the cause for all our problems. Now, one of the things we do in order to find out what this body consists of is to take it apart into its 32 parts, which I've already explained. And the other way is to use the four elements. I have already also explained how to take the mind apart, to see it in its four aspects of sense consciousness, feeling, perception, and reaction, mental formation. Now, in order to really get a grip on the fact that this person that we think is a reality, a solidity, an entity, an individual, and on top of all that, very important, we really have to do this. We have to take it apart. Only then will we see that we've been making a very profound thinking error all these years. If we take ourselves into a, a part into our various bits and pieces, we will find that there's nothing that can be considered permanent. 
that there's nothing that can be considered a solid substance, there's nothing in there that has any reason to call itself me. That it's strictly a fantasy. Now obviously we don't get that immediately, but the logical, intellectual understanding of that should arise very quickly. The feeling of it takes more time. Not to find a me in there does not produce an inferiority complex, nor does it produce a superiority complex. All it produces is a great relief that the thing that we've been worrying about all these years doesn't even exist. So why worry? Now that kind of relief is a necessity in order to practice properly. Because if we practice this, a lot of worries and fears, aggravations and anxieties, difficulties, the practice cannot flourish. The Buddha said that joy in the past is a prerequisite for any meditation. An inner joy which translates into a feeling of being uplifted all the time. One doesn't fall into these pits where one can't see left nor right, where everything seems to be muddy, foggy, groggy, and unpleasant. Now, the greatest relief we can get is if we intellectually at least understand that all this nonsense we've been worrying about is nothing but nonsense. There's nobody there that needs it all. Now obviously, as I said before, we won't get that feeling right away, but at least a bit of understanding. If we want to follow the Buddha's path, that has to be part of it. That understanding. And that comes about by watching one's sixth sense contact and recognizing how we deal with them, how foolishly. Taking ourselves apart into our bits and pieces from the body and the bits and pieces of the mind. Name and form, mind and body, arise for one reason only, one cause. And that called, technically, rebirth consciousness. Rebirth consciousness is not to be, con to be confused with sense consciousness. They all call the same thing in Pali. So we have to put that little word in front to make clear what we're talking about. Rebirth consciousness means that there's craving to be, so that particular mind continuum continues on. And as I've said before, check it out against your daily life. All day long, the night and the next morning, the mind continuum continues on and brings with it all the stuff it has had before, all the negativity, all the desires, 
all the cravings, all the worries, all the anxiety, all the confusion. They're all there again next morning. Why didn't they die during the night? Wouldn't it be nice if they had just disappeared? Like the consciousness has disappeared. But they didn't. They're all back there. And we take that for granted because we say, oh, that was me yesterday and it's again me today. But if there's a physical death in the middle of it, somewhere, not just sleep, we can't say, oh, that was me before and now it's me again. So we wonder, how did we get all this stuff? Oh, it's exactly the same way. It doesn't die. It just keeps going. And if we don't do anything about it, it gets worse and worse. It's always much easier to let things slide than to get a hold of them and raise them up. So the rebirth consciousness is that what makes the being arise in the womb at conception. So there's no question in the Buddha's teaching do we have a being at three months after conception three weeks after conception six months after conception when it actually sees the light of day at conception are the Buddha's words there is no conception possible without a being so we have the being the rebirth consciousness and that arises out of one cause only and that are our karma formations because we think we are somebody and everybody thinks they're somebody whether they think they're clever or stupid big or small old or young male or female they're somebody we make karma karma is being made because we think there is somebody doing something I think, I say, I do. And out of that arises all these, um, arise all our opinions and argumentations, because obviously it's got to be right, it's mine. We make karma in three ways, thought, speech and action. And with these three ways of making karma, we have then obviously not given up any of our me idea and therefore when this life finishes or this day finishes whichever you prefer there is reborn the me with all its karmic resultants the karma formations are called in Pali the Sankaras which is the same word that is being used for our mental formations. Now that should give you a clue that we're making karma with all our mental formations. With every thinking moment we're making karma. Which should give everybody an idea that they should watch their thinking. Because karma has resultants. Now, you don't need to say anything, don't need to do anything. Having thought it, 
makes karma. And it has resultants. And I'm sure everybody knows already that when we think negatively, we feel negatively. That's the immediate resultant. When we think dislike, we feel dislike. Immediate resultant. You don't have to go any further. You don't have to wait for a next life or a next day. It's immediate. Just like that. The karmic resultant of the wrong kind of thinking is in constantly in force. And the wrong kind of thinking, if that doesn't get watched and changed, is a chain of events which brings about unpleasant feelings, which brings about the negative thinking which brings about the unpleasant feeling which brings about the negative thinking and so on and so forth and it is the um, devil's own merry-go-round but we can stop it by stopping to think like that it's really very simple just stopping to think like that and think something else. How simple can it be? Through our meditative practice we learn the substitution process, particularly if we've learned to label. If we can label in meditation when the mind is still um, not concentrated, we can label in everyday life and know exactly when it's negative. And as we know it's negative, or profitable or unprofitable, we can call it those words also, and we learn to substitute in meditation with the breath or with the meditation subject as the mind wanders off, we must be able to do that in everyday life, to substitute. If we don't, meditation isn't doing anything for us then it's just a matter of trying over and over again to substitute in daily life that which is unprofitable with that which is profitable. Because unless we do that, that merry-go-round will not stop. And if the merry-go-round keeps on going over and over, longer and longer, we get dizzier and dizzier from it. And in, in the end, we don't think straight at all because we're totally dizzy from that churning and turning. We've got to stop it. And we can. Everybody can. Now, one way is a substitution. There's another way of stopping that kind of um, unwholesomeness, bad karma-making, unpleasantness, and that is to take the mind off it and put it somewhere else. Now, the substitution means that when there is an unprofitable thought about something or someone, we try to substitute that with a profitable thought about the same someone or something. But if we want, want to, if that doesn't work for us, and take determination, we take the mind off whatever it is we have put it on, and put it somewhere entirely different. Let's say we are angry about a person. 
So we take the mind off that and put it on the beautiful feathers of a bird. Even if the bird isn't there, we, we know what it looks like. Or the sight object that we can find near the Buddha statue. And stick with that sight object long enough so that the thought process, the unprofitable thought process about whoever or whatever it may be has completely disappeared. And if that sight object doesn't do it, take another one. If that doesn't do it, do a sound object. Maybe saying a verse which may be helpful to raise the level of consciousness. Anything is better than sticking to the negativity. Anything. Doing a physical exercise, going for a walk. Even taking a book to hand is very helpful, containing some of the Buddha's teaching. takes one's mind completely off that, whatever it was. Now that's exactly what we do also in meditation. When the distracting thoughts arise, after having labeled or without even labeling, whatever the practice happens to be at that moment, we take it off the thought to the breath, totally different object. Take the thought of the unprofitable and put it on the profitable. If we can't control our mind that much even for one minute, then our meditation cannot possibly flourish. At least we can try. Obviously, if we are very angry, very upset, very unhappy, the object which we have chosen as a scapegoat will arise again, but we can take it off again. Now that we always choose something as a scapegoat is our attempt to for an escape mechanism. This is not the way to get off that merry-go-round. We've got to stop the music. The merry-go-round doesn't have an escape mechanism. It keeps turning and turning and turning until we actually stop the merry-go-round. And for that, we've got to stop the music that's going, which are negative thought processes. They're totally unnecessary. They have never yet had any value. They are completely without any value. They are detrimental to our own well-being, physical and psychological, both health aspects are impaired through negative thinking and make life extremely difficult for the one who has them and for anyone who comes into contact with them. becomes more and more difficult as one stops it less and less. It's common sense, isn't it? It just takes a little determination, a little meditation practice, and trying it again and again. Recognizing that the one who suffers most is the one who's got it. The scapegoat doesn't suffer from that. Not at all. The scapegoat might know nothing about it. It's the one who's having the negativity who's suffering. 
So if we are such fools as to make ourselves suffer, we could be at least clever enough to recognize the fact that it's possible to stop. The karma starts in the mind in the thinking process. It's followed through through speech. We cannot possibly say anything that we haven't thought about. And as it comes from speech, it goes into action. Now, we do make the heaviest karma through action, obviously. And it's also far more difficult to reverse. In some cases, it's irreversible, the action. If we have thought about killing somebody, that's very reversible. We can just think, oh, what nonsense, and stop thinking like that. If we say that we're going to kill a person, well, that too is reversible. We can apologize. But if we've actually done it, we've done it. So if we don't watch our mind and make that mind something to live with happily and contentedly, a mind that is joyful and pleasant and gives us a pleasant abiding, then our speech and our action isn't going to be a pleasant abiding either. So with watching the mind, we have the third and fourth foundation of mindfulness. And if we don't make that a habit, we can't practice. It's as simple as that. We've got to make it a habit. Nobody can practice who's got all that churning going on in the mind and doesn't do anything about it. Obviously, it takes a little time but it doesn't have to take a long time. It's a matter of being at it and recognizing that that is a dis-ease of the mind, the unease of the mind, which has to be remedied through the medicine of the Dhamma. If we can't use it we just think it's very nice, but we can't use it. The dis-ease of the mind is going to stay the same. It will just be dis-ease. And this dis-ease, which is the unease in the inner being, projects itself outward. Everybody knows about it, whether we'd like them to know or not. So what we're doing is we're spreading disease this ease of the mind. And then we think about all the, the importance of non-pollution and the importance of organic and biological um, earth attention and we think about such things and in, fa in fact we are spreading disease ourselves. We have to start in the center in ourselves 
That's where the whole thing comes from. All the outward action is nothing but manifestation of the inward self. So if we want to spread anything that's worthwhile, we'll have to spread that which is peaceful and ease, which doesn't contaminate and which doesn't pollute. And if we're interested in that sort of thing, and most people are nowadays, that's where we get it from, from the mind. Karma formations. Very often shown on the picture as a potter with a lot of nice pots and a lot of broken pots. Every potter has broken pots. Everybody who thinks they're doing something makes good and bad karma. And the only thing we can do is to minimize the bad karma and maximize the good karma. All due to ignorance. Ignorance is a technical term. We have to use those technical terms so that they are unified and appear the same over and over again. Ignorance means ignoring the four noble truths. It doesn't mean not having learned anything. It doesn't mean to be ignorant of ordinary everyday affairs. It means ignoring the Four Noble Truths. And that is very um, well done and very determinedly done by practically all of humanity, ignoring the Four Noble Truths. The uh, first two, which anybody can immediately prove in themselves to be correct that all dukkha arises out of craving out of wanting or not wanting and that we've got it and that the only way to get rid of it is by not wanting the third noble truth is the noble truth of the cessation of all dukkha well that everybody is successfully evading of course because that's Nibbana. And the fourth noble truth is the Noble Eightfold Path, which we are discussing in its first aspect, the right view. The right view, which in this instance, the Buddha has proclaimed the first three, profitable and unprofitable, nutriment, and then the... um, depend arising which started out with old age and death and coming now to the end of it to ignorance now ignorance which ignores the four noble truths has also a cause it's often depicted as a blind old woman trying to walk through a forest and of course having great difficulty finding her way. And this is what we should think of as ourselves, the blindness which again and again brings about problems, unhappiness, foolishness, that kind of uh, inner unrest, And the ignorance has a cause. 
And the cause is called the taint. That's a terminology again. And the three taints are our sensual desire, being, and ignorance again. So what we have is we're going around in circles. Now being is a taint. I wonder whether you can see the significance of that statement. Not only that we have sensual desire, which brings about all these difficulties with clinging and craving, which we have already discussed. No, but it's also the fact that being itself has arisen through craving. And therefore, being itself is already attained a difficulty. And because we have ignorance, we are ignoring the truth, that's why we have this. That's why we have being. And in this case, of course, being means personal being, individualized being. And these taints, these three, arise out of what are called the underlying tendencies. Sometimes there are five and sometimes there are seven. Now the underlying tendencies, one could say, are that which motivates us. And because we don't know them, because we don't pay attention, Buddha said we're all half asleep all the time. In fact, he said we're completely asleep all the time. Because we don't watch out, we don't know them. And our motivations appear to us to be fine and above board and valuable. But because the underlying tendencies are there, our our motivations are everything but that. They're based on ego. And they're based on seven facts. First one is greed. The motivation is for getting something. Whatever it is we want to get, whether we want to get a good meditation or whether we want to get some peace and quiet, whatever it is, as long as there's somebody there that wants to get something, it's greed. It doesn't have to be anything other than that. Just getting. And the next one is called grudge. Well, that's a little more subtle than hate, but it's the same thing. Holding a grudge, momentarily or longer. The negativity in the mind. We can give it any nice name we like. This one's rather nice, grudge, sounds okay. It's okay to have a grudge, isn't it? Most people think it is okay. And the third one are our views, the wrong view of self. Anyone who's not a stream enterer, that means hasn't had the first experience of Nibbana, has totally wrong view of self. And that's why I'm urging anyone who really wants to practice and get rid of all this dis-ease inside, needs to have at least an intellectual understanding of what I am, at least that much. 
If the mind's too lazy to do it, well, that's all right. The practice will just not work. But if the mind has any kind of energy in it, then that investigation needs to be done so that one sees at least the wrong way one's looking at oneself. The laziness is very often connected to skeptical doubt, which is another one of the underlying tendencies. How do I know that this is really so? Well, there's only one way of knowing, that's trying it out, investigating oneself, doing it, not just sitting there trying to think, well, it could be right, it could be wrong. Actually doing it, getting in there and doing it, less thinking, more doing. If one actually starts doing something about it, one finds out this is so. But nobody needs to prove it to one. One only has to prove it to oneself. It's that old story about biting into the mango to find out what the mango tastes like. Who's going to tell us what, tastes, what a mango tastes like if we don't bite into it? The whole of the spiritual practice is doing, actually getting in there and finding out what makes one unhappy, restless, dissatisfied, skeptical, viewpoint, greed, grudge, Okay, after the skeptical doubt comes conceit. Now, conceit does mean conceiving of oneself as an entity and individual, but it also, at the same time, creates conceit. It creates the conceit of the ego person that he or she knows. And not only that, but he or she knows better. So that conceit is based on the conceiving of a me. Now, that also takes a turn to the other side where that person then thinks, I know less. They have both the, the same uh, base for it. And if it is a person that thinks, I know anyway, then the practice is usually completely stymied because if one knows anyway, why should one practice? Those are the people that are looking for the cherry on top of the cake. A little bit of meditation to make life a little more bearable. It doesn't work. There's no way one can do it like that. A little bit of meditation does not make life more bearable. A little bit of meditation is nothing. Life only becomes bearable when one investigates who one really is and finds out that the whole thing has been a complete and utter fallacy. And then life becomes very bearable because there's nobody there to bear it. It's quite all right, whatever it is. But just a little bit of this and a little bit of that to make the cake a little more appetizing, it's not the right attitude. In fact, what it creates is an upset stomach. People like that can't continue to, to practice. Now that's the conceit coupled with the skeptical doubt, those two are effectively 
stopping one's practice. The greed and the grudge, or the greed and the hate, I mean, it's the same thing, are the causes for practice. They make one practice. Because they are unpleasant, particularly the hate. Very unpleasant. And that's what makes one practice. But the conceit and the skeptic without makes one stop. Now the view, the wrong view of self, is a um, direct resultant of the, the whole idea of, of who this me is, and results then in the, in the conceit and the skeptical doubt. And then another one again is ignorance, which is again ignoring the uh, Four Noble Truths, ignoring them to the point of not practicing them. Ignoring their existence, ignoring the whole of the guidelines that the Buddha gave, because the whole of the guidelines are embedded in the Noble Eightfold Path. Of course, he elaborated on that in great detail, but the whole of the thing is already there. So if we ignore the Four Noble Truths and don't practice according to the Noble Eightfold Path, then the uh, underlying tendencies haven't got any chance of being diminished. The, um, the whole gamut of, this, of these tendencies then manifests in our hindrances. The hindrances, the five hindrances, are the grosser aspects of these underlying tendencies. Now, some of them are worded exactly the same. The skeptical doubt has exactly the same name. Greed is called the um, desire for sensual gratification, and grudge is called ill will. But, I mean, nothing has changed much, has it? But the underlying tendencies are the more subtle subconscious impurities which make the conscious hindrances arise. So even if we do work with the conscious hindrances, we are at the same time also attacking the underlying tendencies. And by doing so, the purification process takes place. Those two aspects of the teaching could be considered the most important. Namely, the purification process and understanding cause and effect. Now, cause and effect, as it is depicted here, independent arising, is an overall view. But we should see cause and effect in ourselves. How what we think say and do any given moment as an effect no matter how subtle or how gross and the effect is usually an immediate well-being or feeling of unwell unpleasant anxious lossful angry 
So these causes and effects can be seen following each other so quickly that we don't have to be particularly um, attentive to even know it. And then, because the teachings often cause the teaching of cause and effect, but it's also called the path of purification. So if we keep those two things in mind, and we do have to keep something in mind that helps us to practice, we may be able to practice during the day. To see cause and effect, sense contact, mind reaction. Purification through substitution or taking the mind off. If we don't have the... um, that kind of impetus in the practice it's going to be very difficult now the seven of the seven underlying tendencies is a desire for continued existence and naturally that arises out of our wrong view of self and arises out of this conceiving of self and the desire for continued existence is this um craving to be, which is very much catered for through that what arises in the mind and brings about the rebirth consciousness. Now, we don't have to wait till we die to find out that we have craving for continued existence. We can do that any moment of the day. Find out whether you're ready to die now this second. And if not, obviously you've got desire for continued existence. It's very simple. But it's got to be done. And when we have desire for continued existence, we've got it for one reason only, because we've got wrong view of self. And wrong view of self means that we think we're somebody. And with somebody being somebody comes all that conceit of knowing and being. And with all that conceit comes the skeptical doubts or slothfulness, the uh, superiority or inferiority complex, and all the unhappiness within, because the one who is also wants and can never get all that he or she wants. So, It's uh, the devil's merry-go-round. There is certainly a way to stop it, but only through introspection, contemplation, through the practice of what the Buddha has actually given the guidelines for, doing every bit of it. Now, not later. There is only now. There never was anything. There never will be anything. There only is this now. And if we have this opportunity which we have here, which is the most excellent opportunity that one can possibly have, total quiet, a place where nothing interrupts except one's own thought processes, come to the recognition of it, that there's nothing wrong 
accept one's own thought processes and then change them. These are now the 16 right views. And with these 16 right views, there is enough for a lifetime. But we'll hear, hear more about other things too. All right, if you have any questions, this is the time to ask. Everything quite clear or totally unclear? Either way. The main thing is to know how to practice. That's the only thing that counts. Everything else are words and concepts. And words are concepts. Because they try to make something stationary which is constantly moving. But if one knows how to practice, that too is constantly moving. That's all that counts. Yes. Sorry? Whatever is happening at the moment, in order to live sensibly, in order to practice sensibly, you've got to use common sense. And common sense means pragmatism, realism. That's what is happening is what you watch. When there's nothing happening at all, the best thing to watch is your body, the actions of the body, mindfulness of the body. When there are feelings arising, when there are thought processes arising, well, watch them and know that you need to purify them, the thought processes. And if there are any kind of, of the uh, non-profitable things arising, know that you need to make them profitable. It boils down to cause and effect and purification. Whatever you watch, what does it matter? It's all got to be purified. It's all cause and effect. And you're not supposed to do this or that. You're just supposed to become aware. That's all. Whatever it happens to be the foremost thing, that's what you become aware of. The one that's foremost and standing out. Anything else? You think this is much. The Buddha taught much more than that. <laughs> well, those things that you think are important to practice, put them on a piece of paper and keep looking at it every day. No. 
Uh, of those, um, of those 16 uh, right views, 13 are dependent origination, dependent arising. And here I've been recommending watching the sense contact and see how the mind deals with it. That's a very important one because everybody believes that they're important, sense contacts. To become really aware, it's a matter of, of being on a level of alertness which most people never have. Being totally alert to what is what one is doing. Most people are half asleep. I've got a clue what they're doing. So this alertness is this awakeness of knowing what's going on. And if you try to practice, that alertness arises. Because with each trying, the alertness increases. Then it becomes natural. Anything else? Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Think of yourself as a golden vessel filled to the brim with love and compassion. The whole of your body and the whole of your being is the golden vessel. And as it's filled with love and compassion, It overflows and surrounds you. So that there's nothing else except love and compassion in your awareness. And now imagine that you're emptying the whole of this golden vessel full of love and compassion into and around the person sitting next to you. So that he or she is 
filled with your love and compassion, surrounded, embraced by it, Though you have emptied yourself out completely, given all your love and compassion, you're still filled with the same feelings. Once they're there, they can't be lost. giving away they increase so feel yourself even more filled with love and compassion and then give all of that to everyone here filling and embracing everyone with all that your heart contains. Now pour all the love and compassion that you contain into the hearts of your parents, filling and embracing them. And now pour all the contents of your heart, full of love and compassion, into the hearts of those who are nearest and dearest to you. Filling them from head to toe, embracing them, permeating them with your love and compassion.
And now pour yourself out completely to all your friends. Let them have all your heart's content. The more of it you give away, the more there will be in your own heart. Now think of all the many people who are part of your life, wherever you might meet them, and pour all your heart's content out to them. All your love, all your compassion, Healing them completely. Think of any special person in your life. And pour from yourself all the love, all the compassion that you can find into the heart of that person. 
And now imagine that you're growing larger and larger so that this golden vessel which you are increases a thousandfold and thereby can contain a thousand times love and compassion. Grow as large as you can, making love and compassion as immense as possible and then pour it over people, animals, nature, beings of all kinds, seen and unseen, in all the realms, this planet and the universe, as much as the size of your golden vessel will permit. Put your attention back on yourself. And feel within yourself only that you are this golden vessel containing love and compassion, nothing else, from head to toe, all around, body and mind. all that and nothing else. Be that golden vessel. Try to contain that golden vessel of love and compassion within your heart that you become one with it. May beings everywhere have peace and happiness.